welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 159, recorded March 15th, 2014. Yeah, and today we are continuing Star Trek Voyager that we did way back in episode 51. So only 100 episodes later, we're finally back into the Marvel Voyager series. <laughs> yeah, funny about that. Now, luckily, we start out with a new story arc in number four. So. Right. Yeah, thank goodness part three, issue three that we did back in episode 51 was not continued because I would not yeah, have exactly. what happened. No, we would have needed a big old recap at the beginning. Right. But issue six, which we'll finish this episode off with, does have it to be continued. So you will have to wait at least a couple of weeks before we get to number seven. Right. But hopefully but- it won't be 100. No, it won't be, since we are solidly in uh, Marvel mode. Marvel 90s mode. Indeed. So today we'll do 4, 5, and 6. I have the pleasure of doing part 4 and 6, and you'll do 5. The yes. synopsis. Yes. So, do you want to just jump right into it? or Let's. Wanna Let's jump it? right into it. All right. Issue number 4 came out February of 1997, Writer was Howard Weinstein. Penciler is Jesus Redondo. Inker is Sergio Malia. Colorist is John Callies. Letterers are Chris Elopoulos and Virtual Calligraphy. Editor Bobby Chase and Editor-in-Chief Bob Harris. This issue is entitled Homeostasis Part 1. The cover shows Chakotay running towards Neelix, who's lying unconscious on a rock-barren ground of some unknown planet. The sky above them is filled with the saddened face of a Kazon warrior. The caption reads, The Kazon destroy a planet, and then head for Voyager. So the story starts with Janeway's logs informing us that Voyager is not quite 100%, and her crew are starting to show wear and tear. She hopes that they can remedy both of these problems soon before they have another run-in with the Kazon. Janeway is in engineering with Milana Torres. The chief engineer informs the captain that the phasers are very low and that there are stress fractures throughout the phase array. She needs a supply of duranium before the repairs can be made. The captain is called away by a very agitated Neelix. Upon her arrival at the mess hall, he informs her that the food supply is running very low. The conversation about the kitchen inventory is stopped short when Voyager is rocked by a phaser blast. Janeway arrives to the bridge and is informed of the situation. A Kazon battlecruiser has appeared and is opening fire on them. Janeway orders Tuvok to return fire at 1 100th power but she asks that he miss on purpose 
so that the Kazon would not know how limited their resources are. She also orders the simultaneous firing of a photon torpedo. The Kazon dodge the phaser blast, but the torpedo hits the mark and the engines are knocked out. The two ships then part ways. Janeway is left wondering why the Kazon attacked in the first place. Later, Neelix informs Janeway of a nearby planet called Praja. There, they can get resupplied with food and uranium. Voyager makes her way there, and once they arrive, the sensors show that the planet is now lifeless. It looks like all the plant life has been destroyed, and there's no signs of surviving animals. They decide to beam down the next day to investigate. While they're waiting to beam down, Cass requests to join the away team, which Janeway allows. Later, in the mess hall, Neelix talks Janeway out of allowing Kess to be on the away mission. Kess overhears Neelix making this request, and she makes a big scene there in the mess hall over Neelix being so protective. Janeway does not change her mind, and Kess will still be part of the mission. The next day, Kess, Neelix, Chakotay, and Kim beam down to the ghost town of a colony. They speculate that the plants were destroyed by a weapon of some sort and that all the animals then died of starvation. They even find missiles that must have dispersed the toxin. On the ship, Taurus confronts Janeway about the duranium. She does not understand why they cannot just beam it off the planet without trying to find the permission of any survivors of the colony. Janeway states that they cannot just plunder a planet that is already claimed by another race. On the planet, Neelix falls into an underground cave. When Chakotay tries to help him, they both fall deeper into the abyss. Elsewhere, Kim and Tuvok find what looks like to be mining equipment uh, elsewhere on the planet. Then, we flash to deep space, and we see a fleet of Kazon ships. The mage of the fleet is informed that they are receiving a signal from the planet Praja that their mining equipment is being tampered with. The mage gives the order to set course to the planet. To be continued. Alright, setup issue. Indeed. My first comment is in artistry area. Okay. Of which the artwork is okay. Decent. Although I gotta say some of the coloring is kind of odd. Especially flash colors. They're very bronze-skinned. Everybody is. Yeah. It's kind of like that Crayola crayon that says, <laughs> uh, flesh-colored. It's like, <laughs> well, flesh of what race? But th- this is the Caucasian crayon. Which isn't very good, but it looks like they're using it in this issue. Right. Yeah, it looks very orangey to me. So yes, everybody looks there like they, they have the fake tan going. That's it. Now, mind you, Neelix is supposed to look orangey, but not exactly. uh, not the human beings. Right. And the only time they don't look orangey is when they're in their environmental suits, and then they look yellow. Like, <laughs> if you look at Kess when she's wearing the helmet, yeah. her hair color and her face color is the exact same. Yeah. Her, her hair just blends right into the rest of her face. Yep. That's not right. No. But maybe it's some kind of protective uh, tint. <laughs> some tint. Who knows? But yeah, that's a good point. I didn't notice that. But now that you mention it. Yeah. 
but I, to be honest, I didn't notice the uh, you know the spray on tan that everybody else had through the majority of the book until you mentioned it. <laughs> right. It it definitely does look like that. So, what do you think of the artwork other than the um, the coloring? I, I like the space scenes. They're they're not realistic at all because they really show all these like flames of or ribbons of energy or whatever in the background all the time in space. Right. Uh, which look really cool. I mean, it looks like this big fiery ribbon in behind, you know, Voyager as it's coming up towards the planet and things like that, which look cool. But, you know, I've seen enough Star Trek and other, you know, real space photos and that stuff just does not exist. <laughs> <laughs> True. It kind of punches things up a bit. Yeah, it looks cool. It looks like like they're going through the Badlands all the time. Right. I don't think that's what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, well, well, they're not supposed to be in a region of space that had a lot of um, stellar gases and stuff, right? I mean, they're not in the middle of a nebula or something. Are they? I didn't nope. think so. Nope. Or at least they don't say it in the dialogue. So it's just gratuitous, flamey-looking stuff just to punch up the visuals. Right. Yeah. Right. Eh. Now, when we get to issue number six, in that issue, I think it's at least a little explained, maybe, but but even then... It, I think it's just gratuitous. It it looks cool. Yeah. But what? So what about you? You like it? No, uh, it's fine. You know, it's the faces are accurate enough for the original actors. The Kazon look mm, pretty good in general. Um, as good as a Kazon can look. Well, I'm not saying they look attractive. I'm just saying they look fairly accurate. <laughs> and they were never never drawn as a, as a handsome race. Of all the Star Trek. Aliens, mm-hmm. and you know, there's some pretty hokey ones, especially yeah. if you go to the original series. Kazon was the one that I never understood. I mean, they look like a cheap ripoff of Klingons. Yeah, exactly, but with a lot of hair. Right. They've with, always with got bad hair days. Really matted hair, but their heads look like, you know, something I would do with paper mache or something and stick on my forehead. I, I never <laughs> liked the Kazon. Yeah. Well, they're definitely a race that doesn't have much redeeming qualities, ever. I, I don't remember ever there being uh, anything but a car- cartoon villain uh, Kazon. Yeah, the only time they tried to do something different was, um, and, and I'm drawing a blank on his name, a- uh, Aaron Eisenberg, is that his name? The guy who yeah. played Hog? Yeah. He was in right. one episode of Voyager where he played a young Kazon that was trying to you know, earn his name. Mm-hmm. And that one was actually pretty good because, you know, he was young enough. You know, he wasn't 100% set in the, you know, the like you said, cartoon villain role that, that the adults always played. Right. But he, he acted like he was, but there were scenes where he's like, does he really buy the, is he really drinking the Kool-Aid or is he just doing it because that's what's expected of him? Right. So that was the only storyline of the Kazon that I liked, and and I was not sad when they stopped showing up on Void, right? And got replaced by the Borg. Me, <laughs> yeah. You know when they. One thing about the show is underscoring how alone they were. Never any backup. So when they start, I mean, the, the Kazon were like annoying. After a while, I, I I too was happy when they finally moved on and bye bye Kazon. But when they had the Borg come in, it was like. At first, it was like, oh, my God, it's the, it's the Borg. How are they going to handle us alone? And then it just kept on being Borg all the time. It's like it just became really hard to believe. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah, that little Voyager. And the Voyager ship's not even a... It's yeah, not even not a galaxy class. It's not, not even a fighting ship. It's a science vessel. Oh, I never do that. Yeah, the Intrepid class is supposed to be a science vessel, so... That's the reason why it went into the Badlands is because, you know, it was small and, you know, maybe had the, sen- you know, scientific sensors and stuff that they wouldn't put on a galaxy class ship. I don't know, but there was justification as to why a science vessel was going after uh, the Maquis in the Badlands in that first episode. But then, I... like you said, <laughs> then it just became just as powerful as the Enterprise, if not more powerful, because it could always hold its own against board cubes and things. Yeah, but yeah, but as as was underscored in the first episode that Picard and company came up against the Borg, they couldn't hold their own. They shouldn't, you're right. No, I mean they were carving the Enterprise up like uh, like a Christmas turkey. Well look at look oh, at the best of both worlds. It took out a whole fleet of exactly. Federation ships. Exactly. But on Voyager, one little tiny science vessel Never, never well, blew up. Always yeah, but, somehow but, outwitted them. Well, or something else would come into play because at least they never showed Voyager being able to actually take one on. No. So that was good. It's just that they always just got out of it. Don't know how. So whatever. Right. 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 Well, okay, so uh, let me just mention a few other things that always bug me about uh, Voyager. What the heck? We're, 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 on a, we're on a roll, aren't we? Right, we're on our soapbox. So, and there is an example here. So, okay, scarcity of food. Mm-hmm. That would always seem so artificial to me. So, they got replicators, they've got power, and their power comes from matter-antimatter reactors, and they've got fission reactors, too, on board. So it's like... Or not fission, fusion probably. But they've got these, all these different power sources at their command, and they don't seem to be light on fuel. So the idea that they can't just replicate all the food they want always bugged the crap out of me. Well, I mean, they're not creating matter with energy. They're, they're somehow transforming it, right? So, I mean, th- that was why they always had... I, I did not know that. They could always do the holodeck. Because it used a different kind of power than, oh, or a different kind of come resources. Come on, come on! It used different resources <sighs> than the replicators did. Blah 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 blah. <laughs> but that's why I, they they rationed out all their their. Yeah, I, I don't buy it. I don't buy it one bit. So okay, okay, so okay, so you say that the replicators do not just use energy to convert energy into matter. It's actually using some raw materials to transform into, you know, a hot pocket. Is that what you're saying? That's that's the way I always took it. Okay. Well, what what, what kind of raw matter is that, Donovan? Um, it's a uh, human waste. <laughs> <laughs> well, they got plenty of that. Well, yeah, but not enough. Not enough. <laughs> that's why they. That's why they still have look, the replicators. Look, uh, that that. That's fine. You you can make whatever justifications you want. <laughs> I think the I think they artificially, especially in the first season, had too many things to make it more difficult for right. them. They're stinking stupid gel. You know, were those biopack things? That right. thank God they dropped those finally. That was always getting a cold. It's like, right. well, why do you even have those things? What do they really do for you? 
And then the idea that they couldn't replicate all the food they needed. That's so artificial. I'm sorry. I, I like your justification. Well, I know I don't. But uh, that was always uh, you know, a bunch of hoo-ha poo-poo. And then in this episode, they've got the, uh, the phasers are offline because of what? They were damaged or that they need regular replenishing of duranium? I mean, what? another yeah. artificial thing. What was that about? Well, we probably should have at least looked at issue number three to see if if maybe there was a big battle at the end. And, and yeah, I, yeah, okay, so that that's a good point. I didn't go back and look. But they didn't even talk about the source of the problem nope. with the phasers. It's just, oh, we got a problem with phasers. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. And by the way, since when have photon torpedoes become such ineffective weapons? I mean, I, I thought photon torpedoes were kick butt. Right, so you think it should have just completely destroyed the Kazon ship? Oh, come on! Yes! Photon torpedoes always seemed just as powerful and effective as phasers in all the Star Trek media that I saw anyway. No, photon torpedoes are more powerful. Oh, there you go. Even more so. So they're artificially, in this issue, downplaying the effectiveness of photon torpedoes. I mean, I mean, who cares they don't have phasers? Well, they had to make it a big deal for this storyline. So, again, the writers had to make that an issue. But in reality, photon torpedoes kick butt. Yes. So, right. Especially if they go right up your tailpipe. Yeah. <laughs> the thing's got to have a tailpipe, right? Well, maybe a hurrah. Um, and another thing I want to mention is... They're talking about all the food they're trying to get. Oh, my God, you know, we need more supplies, blah, blah, blah. And then later in the issue, Janeway replicates a piece of cheesecake. It's like, okay, well, I guess the captain has uh, has priority or something. I don't know. Well, they have rations, so she can use her rations for whatever she wants. <sighs> whatever. Including anyway. cheesecake. If she so desires. Everybody can have cheesecake, Ken. You can either use it to have a cheesecake now, or you save up your rations <laughs> to so have a cheesecake then, later, so that you can then have a clarinet. <laughs> if Who, I remember correctly, is Ensign Kim? Kim said he had to save up two weeks worth of uh, rations to get that clarinet. Wow, two weeks worth. Ken. Ooh, that's something. So he had to eat. Neelix is cooking for two weeks. 100%. Oh, my God. The poor man. And they loved it. Anyway. I just, I just want to say I think the whole thing was artificial. Yeah, I can see it. But I do think that... I mean, I guess the original Battlestar Galactica did it a little bit with the, you know, we're a fleet, you know, with no home trying to make it to yeah. Earth. But they Without still had, replicators. But they never had yeah, replicators. But they had ports, you know, there was all those episodes where they were meeting up with different aliens and things like sure. that. Sure, So they never really delved into, you know, resource issues. Well, but I in, think the new one did a lot. I think the original one didn't. They just went, they, they had their entire society blown to bits. A ragtag fleet left, and they go to Vegas, basically, in the first episode. So it's like, it was very unrealistic. But the new one, the reboot, obviously was very gritty and one of the big things in the one of the last uh, episode is it's either Star I think it was Starbuck she puts a tube of toothpaste on the podium and says you know whatever fighter kills the largest number of whoever's gets the toothpaste 
Right. So that was a big deal because that was like the last of the toothpaste. <laughs> so I do like that. Right. Because but... they, 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 I don't think that they didn't have shields. There were no shields. They didn't have transporters. They didn't have, um, they didn't have replicators. So, you know, all this magic technology that Star Trek has, and I love, by the way, but I, something I liked about Battlestar Galactica is they didn't do a lot of those kind of things. Right. But I think that, I think that the idea of Voyager borrowed a little bit from the original Battlestar Galactica, and I think the new Battlestar Galactica, you know, took some of the things they brought up in the, those first couple episodes of Voyager and, oh. and made it more realistic. Or, you know, like you said, they took out the replicators, and now you really have to have a ship dedicated to just growing food, right? And, and right. so no people can live on that. And then where do you move those people? All that makes a good TV show for what Battlestar Galactica was. But, yeah. you know, some of that was addressed in Voyager, just not to as big a scale. Well, and it was artificial, because of all the tar- in my opinion, because of all the technology they had. Uh, I think it was the third or fourth episode of the rebooted uh, Battlestar Galactica. I believe the title of it was actually Water, the title of the episode. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that big time was talking about the scarcity of water and the fact that there was, there was sabotage. So they actually, some of their water stores were blown up. Right. And that was a big deal. Um. In Voyager, Neelix was having a nice bath because at least they appeared to have enough power to replicate water. Or they just recycled the water. Well, whatever. I mean, one of the main things is uh, Neelix was in the bathtub and he's going, what a wonderful place you must come from that has so much water. Because, of course, water is a scarce commodity in this uh, corner of the... What, what, What quadrant do they pop into? Delta. The Delta Quadrant. There you go. There you go. Delta Flyer. That's right. Yeah, and you bring up the water. In the first episode, I think, of Voyager, they they prove to some species that, you know, they they can do all this magical stuff. And, And one of the things they do is replicate a whole bunch of water and give it to them. Right. And I always thought that was was odd because... Your ship's damaged, you know, because this was very early on. So your yeah. ship's half power. You're, you, nobody's can eat anything, but you're going to replicate. You're still able to replicate a ton of water. Yeah. Yep. So, so, anyways, yeah, there was always little things that you could nitpick, but overall, I I, I liked the rationing, and and if you if you use my train of logic as to why they were rationing, which I don't know if that's what it's supposed to be, it, it made sense to me. That you can't create matter, you can only transform matter to a different form of matter. Uh, what was it, conservation of energy? or Matter, you can never get fully rid of matter, it just transforms into a different form. Right. But I think it can transform into, into non-physical things, like if you burn paper. You know, it right. tran- you know, it transforms into light and heat, and ultimately you have ash, yes, but you can transform matter to energy. So that's why I always thought the basis of the replicator is it would take energy and create matter from energy. That's what I thought, how I thought it worked, but whatever. All right, moving on. Anyways, maybe we should read that uh, 
science of Star Trek, I'm sure it's addressed in there somewhere. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure it is. But I like to just speculate and not really, you know, follow up on whether I'm right or not. Right. <laughs> All right, so back to this issue, if that's okay. Oh, no, let's, let's do that. Okay. So, something I did, I've... Oh, go ahead. You go first. Oh, I, just a, this is a quick one. So, uh, that missile that they yeah, found... That's what I was that, going to talk about. Yeah, that brought the uh, virus to the planet. Right. Uh, sitting in the impact crater. That looked strangely intact. Well, it probably didn't have to explode, just... Well, no, I, and, then... I, I, and I'm and I'm saying I'm not saying its point was to explode. I mean, okay. its point was to spread a, a virus. It's just that it's in a big old crater, so I'm kind of surprised how intact it is. Agreed. I mean, they 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 should have had it land or something, or maybe not in such a big hole that obviously when it hit the planet, it had that much force because the thing looks completely intact. Right. Which is fine if its main thing is to spray some of this stuff out uh, into the atmosphere, then, then have it land. I don't know. It just seemed right. yeah. so what, a little what is odd. That, what is that casing made out of? Exactly. It's pretty strong. And it's a very retro-looking rocket. I mean, yeah. It looks like it actually has, like, chemical... Uh, propellant or propellant. something. I mean, it looks like a very contemporary rocket. Right. Which, not always known to be the most durable of spacecraft. Yeah. So, anyways, and, and this is if this is supposed to be a Kazon thing, then you, you know, I know the Kazon's supposed to be kind of primitive, but I mean they don't have giant engines on their ships that shoot out flame or anything, right? Do they? Uh, not that I've noticed. But we also find out a little later that they may have borrowed some of their tech, so it's kind of hard to tell what's uh, exactly the origin of some of the stuff they're using here. Right. So I like how Chakotay has a backpack on when he goes down. That's very logical. I like that. They should always have backpacks when they go on away missions. I hate to say this, but kind of like key comics. <laughs> or gold key comics. Yes, except they don't look like bricks on their back. <laughs> yeah, that was the bad part. Their backpacks look like big boxes. Big, awkward boxes with straps on them. Right. Yeah. I'll agree with that part. So, there you go. I like backpacks on away missions. Yeah, looks good. Yeah. All right, anything else? No. No, that's it. All right, cool. You want to get started? Sure. Okay, next issue. Number five. Title is Homeostasis, The Conclusion. March 1997 is the published date. Creative team is made up of Howard Weinstein, writer, penciler, Jesus, Redondo, inker Sergio Malia, colors Shannon Blanchard, letterer Chris Elipolis, editors Bobby Chase, Mark Panacea, and Tim Tui. Heavy editing duties, apparently, on this one. Chief Bob Harras. The cover shows Neelix and Chakotay being threatened by the spears of five humanoid aliens who are surrounding them. Their faces are vaguely ape-like. They wear tattered clothing. Text on the cover says, Chakotay and Neelix on their own and in trouble. The issue starts with Neelix standing on Chakotay's shoulders, attempting to reach the edge of the pit they are in. They need to get out, and Neelix's reach may be the only way to do it. Their combined height 
is just not enough to reach the edge, unfortunately. They finally give up. Then a short time later, five spears are pointing down on their position. Neelix recognizes one of the Shambrog colonists, whose name is Ryan. Ryan recognizes Neelix, too, and reminds Neelix of the money he still owes them from the last trip to Prajan. Meanwhile, the three Kazon ships approach Prajan and detect Voyager in orbit. They gloat about how they will destroy Voyager and do what the Nistrum could not. Later, after the Shambrog survivors get Chakotay and Neelix out of the pit, Janeway quickly comes to an agreement with them. They will give them the duranium needed to fix Voyager's phasers, and in return, Janeway will help them with emergency supplies and help to stop the biological plague. Kess and Kim are making good progress on the biological plague front by developing four potential cures. They tell Janeway they need to get to the surface to test them out. Kess and Harry beam down with their potential cures to join Chakotay and Neelix in the underground caverns that the Shambrog survivors currently live in. Kess informs Chakotay that the caverns contain airborne toxins. They will be okay for a short stay, but prolonged exposure is deadly. Chakotay says the Shambrog have been down here much longer than they have. They need the toxin antidotes to work. They move outside to report to Janeway. Janeway is not happy about the news and suggests that Kess upload all her data to the doctor to get him working on it in parallel. Chakotay says he will continue to check in every half hour and terminates communication. Tuvok reports three ships are on approach to Praja. He conjectures they may be related to the plague on the planet. Janeway orders yellow alert. Stand by for possible emergency transport of the away team. Mr. Paris prepares for evasive maneuvers. A blonde guy with spiky hair we never saw before runs across the bridge for no apparent reason. They attempt to hail the ships, but no response. The ships break formation to flank Voyager, then fire their weapons. Voyager gets a few torpedo shots off, but she takes fire from all three Kazon ships. Janeway states in exasperation, we're outnumbered and outgunned. The Kazon cease fire and hail Voyager. They say the planet has been claimed by the Kazon Oglomar, and if Voyager interferes with their operations, they will be destroyed. Tuvag reads off a sobering damage report, including the forward torpedo launchers being offline. Janeway calls down to Chakotay and tells him to keep his head down until they can repair and return. Chakotay acknowledges, and Janeway gives the orders to break orbit and withdraw. The four potential cures Kess and Harry brought down from the ship prove ineffective. Harry gets pretty discouraged. Tess suggests they may be going about this the wrong way. Maybe the answer is in the plants themselves, something natural. Harry objects, pointing out that the virus is not natural. It was engineered, so the solution needs to be likewise engineered. He agrees to try it Mother Nature's way for a while. Chakotay and Neelix go back to the tunnels to find the duranium. 
Back on Voyager, Janeway and Tuvok agree that these Kazon are using stolen bioweapons technology to destroy the planet's ecosystem. Then, they take the resources from the dead world. After they are done, they just go on to the next target. Bellana reports all their repairs are complete except for phasers. She needs the duranium for that. They contact the away team. Chakotay reports they have found a large vein of duranium. More than enough for the phaser repairs, but how can they get it back to the ship? Tom Paris pipes up with an idea that he thinks he can make work. Chakotay and the rest of the away team, with backpacks full of duranium, move through the tunnels to the surface. Voyager erratically makes its way back to Praja, and acts like the ship's out of control, and going to crash on the planet's surface. They pass the Kazon, who seem to buy the deception because they hold their fire. On their way down, they transport the landing party with a geranium to the ship. After they descend below cloud cover, Voyager fires a photon torpedo to simulate its impact on the surface. Tom pulls the ship out of the death spiral and is able to land the ship. The Kazon captain, Maj, smiles when his underling reports Voyager has exploded on the surface. This buys them the time to finish Bellana's phaser repairs. Neelix confirms the ships the Kazon are using are from the Mardi Collective, who are accomplished miners. Janeway sees plenty of justification for undoing the unnatural harm the Kazon have inflicted upon the inhabitants and the once-thriving biosphere of Praja. In sickbay, Cass notices her dead sample plants from the surface are not all dead. There is a small amount of new growth in one of the pots. Nature has found a way. Janeway gives the order to lift off and asks Paris if he is in the mood for a little payback. He confirms he is, and says he has plotted a course that will maximize use of the planet as cover. By the time the Kazons see them coming, Voyager can be firing on them. As Voyager, descent, as Voyager ascends, Janeway receives word of Kess's discovery. The doctor explains the plague attacked the bacteria that let the plants draw nutrients from the soil. The natural bacteria kept mutating until it built up a resistance to the Kazon plague. It took months, but it did finally happen. The doctor says they can significantly help Mother Nature along by growing and spreading the resistant bacteria across the surface of the planet. Voyager reaches space and attacks the unsuspecting Kazon with full phasers. They deal major damage to all three ships and destroy the automated mining equipment on the planet. The Kazon withdraw from Praja. Later, they carry out the Doctor's plan and spread the plague-resistant bacteria across the planet's surface. The Captain commends the entire crew, but in particular Kess, who went with her instincts, did not give up, and found the natural solution. The Shambrog have moved out of the caves and are beginning to reclaim their world. Neelix apologizes to Kess for doubting her. The end. The end. So everything turns out ducky in the end. Right. Of course. Exactly. Well, that's usually what happens. It's seldom you get those unsatisfying endings in, uh, in Voyager episodes, but once in a while. So remind me again, what the, the Kazon, Kazon didn't blow up. They just left. 
They just left. Okay. Yeah, they damaged them pretty heavily, those stolen ships. Right. Which, by the way, look like U-Hauls. Yeah, they're very ugly. They're big, ugly, huge, and... Isn't it funny how they were able to deal so much damage to Voyager that it had to withdraw? Well, it was in a damaged... Or... Well, yeah. the only thing damaged was the phasers, so their shields were still, right. as far as I know, 100% functional. Yeah, and there are three of them, and it is an alien ship, so you don't know how good their weapons are, but usually usually the Kazon ships, they really have to have a lot of ships to be able to affect uh, Voyager's shields enough. Right. In this attack, they had Voyager limping pretty quick. Well, they just had to have an excuse to do the, the barrel roll, roll into the atmosphere. <laughs> Tom had to have a, an excuse to do something. Right. And don't forget about random red-headed guy. Or uh, you said he was blonde-haired? Oh, yeah, on the bridge? Yeah. Running across? I, yeah. I thought he was blonde, but, yeah, okay. Orange-haired? Orange-haired? <laughs> Yeah, to, to to show things are, you know, getting ready for a pitched battle. You got to have the random guy running across. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which I found humorous. Yeah, now in the next issue, there is just a random blonde-haired guy that I don't remember them ever saying even his name. So I don't know if this is supposed to be that guy. Same guy. You know, maybe this is the Bickleys of the, this <laughs> series. But thank God they don't have capes. Right. But maybe he'll just be a reoccurring character in the comic book itself. Perhaps. Perhaps. Because in the next issue, you know, not to spoil it, but he seems like he's a security guy, but he's wearing the red shirt, so this guy's wearing a red shirt, so maybe it's supposed to be this guy. Maybe same one, yeah. What did you think of the artwork? Same? Different? <clears throat> better? Worse? I think it looks pretty similar, quite frankly. Um, I haven't compared them exactly, and uh, we do have a different artist in this one. From the first one? Yeah, so we have... No, we have uh, Jesus in both, don't we? Or no? Uh, yeah, I just want to see if you think that he got better or worse or stayed the same. <laughs> um, I'm going to say more or less the same. Because uh, I was thinking that J- Janeway's face in particular looked less defined in this issue than I remember it looking the last issue. Yeah. There were several scenes where she's talking and it just looked like you know, a blank face with just you know, little dots. Very, very minimalistic <sighs> eyes and nose features. Yeah. I'm looking at a particular one where Tom's in the foreground, she's in the background, and they're getting hit, attacked. Right. Um, and she does look like she's got little tiny nose holes, and <laughs> her <laughs> eyes are really small, and yeah. Yep, I see what you mean. Yeah. So it, it might have been there in that first issue, but it just... Didn't it notice it really jumped out at me on this one. Right. When when Chakotay was on the planet and he had that explosion right near him, um, they, they're not page numbered, so I don't know what page number it is. But yeah. was that a phaser blast or something from orbit? I think it had to be. Man, he was lucky because it missed him by like three feet. Yep. And you could tell it was powerful because it said, Kazak! And then, boom! Sweep it up afterwards. Yep. <laughs> exactly. I want to make yeah. a line, I want to make a line of brooms, and I'm going to call it the Kazak broom. There you go. <laughs> Inspired from the comic. 
And it'll be this font. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so they must have been able to use their sensors to locate the source of the transmission on the planet, I guess. Right. Because the Kazon were able to shoot at Chakotay. That's pretty amazing that uh, he took a shot that close and still lived. Exactly, yeah. Kind of unlikely, but hey, whatever, it's a comic. You would think that he would just melt, right? Isn't it really hot? So if you're three feet away from the phaser itself, wouldn't you feel something? I would think you would. Now, obviously, Chakotay was thrown away, and he's like, oh, so he's thrown into water. Is that what he was thrown into? Yeah. Oh, yeah, there is a little water. But yeah, you'd expect uh, there would be a little more damage, but eh, whatever. And, debris, you know, the, those rock shards would be... There like, you go, like shrapnel. Yep. He should have been cut to ribbons. Damn it! I hate the unrealisticness of it all. I know, it took you right out of it, didn't it? Yeah, well, now it does. <laughs> so I kind of like those anti-gravity rectangle things that Chakotay, Harry, and Neelix are using to move the heavy containers around. That's kind of cool. Yeah. They look, the, rec, the little hexagon things that they're... Pushing around look kind of weird, though. Well, those are the control... Well, oh, you mean the actual containers themselves? Yeah. Okay. Because they well, look really thin, but, you know, a big diameter, right. but not very deep. Right. Yeah. Yep, good point. But the anti-grav, like, things that aren't even... They're not even attached physically to those crates. Right. They're able to to hold on to these things with both hands and obviously levitate the big heavy crates and move them to wherever they want them. Uh, I, you know, I I thought I thought it was cool looking that they were they were using it that way. I've never seen quite that. I mean, anti grav, uh, different kind of anti grav devices, especially like uh, stretchers. <clears throat> seen those all the time in Star Trek. But, you know, people usually have their hands on the device, uh, on the the thing itself. So I thought it was kind of cool that they were able to project an anti-grav beam onto a heavy object and lift it up. Like a tractor beam? I don't know. Yeah. Whatever well, it is. But if it was a tractor beam, then it would be, you know... Heavy You, you would them. have to still be able to hold it up. Which... I agree. I agree. So it must some kind of, be some kind of anti-grav tech. Right. Yeah. The device looks really clunky, though. I mean, it, it takes two hands, and it's as wide as your shoulders. Yeah, it almost looks, you know, it's, it's like about the size of, like, a phaser rifle or something that's kind of sideways. and Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Looks like, a, you know, an old-style, about the same size as an old-style keyboard, electronic keyboard. Oh, really? Was it that short? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe not. I don't know. Scratch cool. that. <laughs> Anyway, I, I thought it was kind of uh, uh, kind of cool looking. Yeah, it reminded me of Empire Strikes Back when the stormtroopers are moving uh, Han Solo, Frozen, and Carbonite. Well, that's because everything comes back to Star Wars after all. Yeah, of course. But I always <laughs> liked that when I was a kid because they're not actually touching it. It's just kind of <clears throat> floating in front of them. Right. And it's not touching the ground. And so yeah. I always thought that was kind of weird. We're... Where is the technology that's getting it to float? Right. So, maybe. maybe. Anti gravity, baby. Anti gravity. <laughs> Which is a technology Star Trek appears to have. The only thing is in the uh, last movie, where the Enterprise is plummeting to the surface of the Earth, they're using 
like 15 Jillian retro rockets on the bottom of the uh, Enterprise to lift it back up again after they were able to get power again. That's because it was 100 years before Voyager. No, no, no. Well, Taz also had anti-gravity tech. Yeah, I'm kidding. Yeah. Yeah, because there was no rockets on the Enterprise. You know, no maneuvering jets or anything. Or was there? Well, I, I would have I agreed with you, but obviously in Next Gen, there was that one episode where Picard himself is controlling the joystick, <laughs> moving the uh, ship through uh, asteroid field. Right. Uh, using retro rockets of some... I, th- I think they have maneuvering thrusters to move you around in space, but I don't think they use that tech when they land on a planet. There's too much... You know, too much, the gravitational pull is too strong. Right, right. Yet, uh, the Galileo 7. You know, how does that sucker get up? It's got to be anti-grav off the planet. I think. It would have to be. Right? So even you since... You can't use the warp drive. No. Well, yeah. And we never saw any kind of rockets of any kind on the bottom of the shuttlecraft. That's why I think they always had anti-gravity uh, tech to get up off the, the uh, up off the planets. Right. As far as Taz is concerned, the only time I could think of, and, and I might be totally wrong, so correct me, but in the motion picture when Spock's shuttle uh, you know, detaches from that warp sled and, and mm-hmm. then you know, attaches to the airlock, Right. Does it have little jets on that when it's, like, turning doing around? Its, doing its maneuvers? Yeah. Uh, I don't recall. I might be mixing it up with, like, you know, 2001 or something that, that right. definitely had it. Okay. Yeah, and you'd think for something like that where you're in space, you know, maybe, you know, retro rock, you know, maneuvering thrusters of some kind make, sh- make sense. But when you're coming off a planet where you've got heavy gravity, you need something more than maneuvering thrusters. That's, you know, anyway. Agreed. But uh, apparently not in the latest uh, Star Trek J.J. Abrams movie. Retro rockets would look so much cooler. All right, let's put 15 jillion of them down there. Well, they also have 15 jillion phaser banks where we all know that there's just one giant one that goes around the whole saucer section. Wait. Oh, no, that's next gen. That's next gen. Voyage uh, Enterprise, or the uh, original series, just came out of the, almost like where the... uh, deflector shield is kind of thing underneath the saucer section and it just came out well okay so you're talking the movies no the tv show okay so phasers came out traditionally because it's the same shot they reuse over and over again in the tv series it would come out of the saucer section the underneath part right underneath part of the saucer section and forward from the middle right 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 but now in the JJ universe, there's just a bunch of turrets all over the ship. Yeah, and I thought they used. I thought they originally had uh, from my model building days, uh, like maybe three different phaser banks on the saucer section. Even back in the Taws days, the forward one you always see, and then I thought there was one on the left and one on the right. Huh. That's what oh. I thought. Although. Special effects-wise, you only saw it coming out of the front bottom. I'll have to look at my little model and see if it's, it's in Because <laughs> I base everything off of a little tiny model of the Enterprise. Okay, well, you do that. You check that out. <laughs> All right, I'll do that. Now, now personally, I, I think the idea of having multiple turrets, like 
in in many in many different places on the Enterprise. I think that's cool. I, I kind of like that. But, but you don't like retro rockets all over it. No. You can't have both, Ken. One you, or the other. You can. You can never have too many phaser banks. I say. But if you if if you've clearly got anti gravity technology, why would you be using uh, retro rockets? I mean, I don't I don't get it. Now, I'm not saying maneuvering thrusters. I mean that's different out in space. But right anyway. So did they explain how they can shoot a photon torpedo in it, not turn into a big light light ball that has little spiky things coming off of it? Well, that whole thing was a bunch of poo poo. Because all they did, so, when, they, when they show it being shot, it looks just like, you know, Spock's coffin. <laughs> no lights and anything. Exactly. Good point. Good point. I don't know. Because traditionally, we, it's, a, it's a ball of light. Right. But when, when it leaves the ship. Right. And the other thing is, come on. I mean, really. So, even if there was cloud cover... That they got beneath. The cloud cover isn't going to do anything to stop the Kazon sensors. Right. So the idea that they go down towards the surface, get below cloud cover, fire a photon torpedo, uh, perhaps kill people um, on the surface, and then that's supposed to be mistaken for Voyager's uh, explosion, uh, destruction. I, I don't know. It's fine. Let's move on. Let's keep the story moving, but it just seems a little hard to believe. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and then they still had to land somewhere, and I, yep. I, I, don't, I don't know. I could I could understand confusing them for a second or two, but eventually yeah. the cl- the smoke's going to clear and your ship's going to be sitting there. Yep, and it's going to be smoke. emitting it's going to be emitting EM, and you're going to come up on the Kazon sensors, but whatever. Especially since there's no vegetation to hide under or anything. Like that. uh-huh, that's true. There's nothing to hide under. Another thing I thought was kind of odd is in the cave scene, when Kess is telling Chakotay that the tricorder is picking up toxic gases in the caves, I was kind of wondering, because right behind them, there's a whole bunch of fires. <laughs> the, uh, the natives have all these fires going in the cave. And it's like, the first thing is, well, maybe all that noxious gas is coming from those stupid fires in a cave. <laughs> you're in an enclosed place, and you're... You've got a bunch of fires going. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it just didn't seem to make sense to me. They have to cook their meat somehow. Well. Oh, wait, they don't have meat. <laughs> I don't know what they've got, but. And they're in a cave, so they, they need to be that, that warm. I don't know. It just, right. it just seemed kind of odd. Yeah, you're right. That, that smoke would fill up pretty quick. You'd think. But... All right. Anything else? Because I'm done. This is just a quick thing. And this, this just all goes to my own... Um, lack of ability of noticing things that has been apparently going on for many years in the Star Trek universe. So towards the end, I noticed that the doctor's uniform is green on top. And I was looking at going green. Wait a minute. Gold, red, blue. McCoy was always blue, blue, not green. And then it's like, since when do they have green? And then it's like, and then I just did a little bit of research and this just is my own ignorance, but I found a picture of Dr. Pulaski, and she had a green outfit on. And then I went back and found multiple Beverly Crusher photos. In some cases, she had a blue uniform. In some cases, she had a green accented uniform. So apparently it's somewhere along the line, and I never noticed it, green came into the picture for doctors. 
Well, I think it's I think it's supposed to be a greenish blue, and, and well, the reason why okay, I say that but, is because when you look at the costume in in person, it always looked green. Well, yeah, and and they said that the colors didn't show up on film a hundred percent the way they show up in real life. Like right. for instance, uh, Picard and Riker's uniforms. Right. In reality, they're a kind of a purplish look, right. not red, but right. it comes up on red as red on film, I guess. Right. So, okay, so that's what you're saying. Yeah. Um, they're green, but it comes up as more of like a teal or green-blue. Right. Okay, okay. Well, fine, teal then. But the main point is it ain't 100% blue like I, I, I was used to all those years with uh, McCoy, and at least the beginning with Crusher. Right. So I just thought I'd point that out. You're probably saying, well, yeah, of course, it's always been that way. It's like, okay, I didn't notice. It's, it's not this green. This is really bright green, the, almost the same color as this vegetation he's holding in his hand. Yeah, and maybe that's just because me, um, maybe that's what made it stick out more in my mind, seeing how green it was. Yeah, I, I'd never noticed it before. That's funny. Hmm. Okay, anything else? No, that's it. Alright, so issue number six is called Relic Quest Part 1. The writer is Ben Rabb, inker is Sergio Malia, colorist John Caliz, penciler is Jesus Redundo, letterer Chris Alopoulos, and virtual calligraphy editor is Tim Tui, then Starfleet Command, Chip Carter, and then editor-in-chief Bob Harris. And this came out April of 1997. So the cover shows a long, white-haired, green-skinned alien, and he's reaching out towards Janeway. She stands there looking very angry at the alien, and behind her we see Tuvok, Kess, and the random red-shirted gentleman that we might have talked about earlier. The caption reads, Who is this alien, and why does he want Captain Janeway? So the story starts off with Kim throwing some insults at Paris there in the mess hall. Very quickly, the verbal blows turn into physical ones when Kim starts throwing some punches. The whole mess hall comes alive in chaos as everyone's breakfast starts flying. Neelix calls to the bridge, and he requests some backup ASAP. Later, Kim and Paris are in adjoining brig cells. Janeway berates the two of them for acting childish, and states that the two of them will serve an example to the rest of the crew by being held in the cells for an unknown amount of time. Soon, Voyager finds a planet on their sensors. They head over to it, and it turns out to be a beautiful blue-green planet with a huge ring around it. Sensors pick up plant life, but they do not pick up any type of humanoid life. Janeway calls Neelix to the bridge to get his opinion. When he arrives, he tells them that this is not possible, since all planets in this sector are uninhabitable since, quote, the order, unquote, was installed. So then we get a little bit of a backstory on what the Order is. So centuries ago, the Dinar system had seven sentient species on seven habitable worlds. 
all of them were somewhat primitive, and then suddenly a new race arrives. And this new race conquered all the other ones due to its advanced technology. Hundreds of years passed with the uh, seven original inhabitants being enslaved by these alien conquerors. The ruling species was also known for tinkering. And somehow they unleashed a massive wave of energy that wiped out all life on all seven planets. Janeway orders Chakotay to gather an away team to beam down and investigate. Before he does, Chakotay asks for a private meeting with the captain. Once alone, he tells her that he's noticing that she seems very stressed and that her stress level is putting the rest of the crew on edge, such as the before fight at the mess hall. He tells her that she needs to relax. For his efforts, Janeway chews him out and tells him to do his job, and she says never to forget that this is a Federation ship and not a Maquis one. Back in the brig, Kim and Paris are heatedly discussing their differences. Kim blames Paris for not allowing him to scan an anomaly that could potentially give them a way home. Paris tells him that he needs to mingle more with the crew and not be so isolated. Suddenly, the force field between the two of them sparks and knocks the two former friends out cold. Later... Janeway, Tuvok, Kess, and a random blonde-haired man beam down to the planet. The planet is filled with huge plants and flowers. Kess, looking at her tricorder, states that there is no life signs on the planet. Suddenly, a large cat creature pounces at them. Tuvok fires his phaser rifle, but it does not slow down the creature. The large creature is about to pounce on them again when a calming voice comes out of the bushes and says, Easy, girl. The creature stops and looks around for the owner of the voice. The owner appears, and he is a green-skinned alien in a long, flowing robe. Tuvok points out that the man does not read on any of their tricorders. The alien identifies himself as Benai. Bania, and he claims to not be alive. Janeway asks what he means by this. Then, with a wave of the alien's hand, the other three crew members disappear. He tells her that he will only answer her questions in private. Before she hears any more from the alien, she contacts the ship to assure herself that the crew somehow arrived there. Indeed, they did. Tuvok informs her however, that the space above the planet has suddenly become crowded with three other ships in the vicinity, one being a Kazon cruiser. Janeway requests an immediate beam-up, but the alien states that she will have to help him first. He tells her that he's looking for a relic that will help him return his people, and it may also have enough power to return the Voyager crew to the Alpha Quadrant. He then pulls aside some tall grass and reveals that there's three other guests, a Vidian, a Kazon, and a Trabe. Knowing that this unknown item cannot fall into the hands of these three species, she agrees to help Benai. 
to be continued. Mm -hmm. Who is this alien? This incredibly powerful alien. Powerful and dead. (laughs) Powerful and dead. Or at least does not come up on tricorder readings. Hmm. Yes, he's deadly powerful. Deadly powerful. Yeah, it looks uh, like the like his face might be vaguely Asian, but with a a very a nose that's very close to the face. Let me pull it up again. And he's in uh, robes um, and a sash for those of you that may not have the comic and never seen this guy before. And very long earlobes. Yes. Yep. And it, and really a way receding hairline. <laughs> right. No plugs, no attempts to get more hair, no. Yeah, he, maybe it's just, you know, because he has the bald top, and he's very thin, and mm-hmm. he's wearing the robe. He looks like, you know, the stereotypical, you know, Buddhist monk that you see, and, uh, you know, there in the temples when they're wearing the long robes and things like that. Right. He looks very regal and dignified like that. Right. And uh, so, it should be interesting to see what little trip... Janeway is going on. Right. So it looks like a very Janeway-focused uh, next issue. Well, yeah, at least the quest part. Right. But I'm, I'm sure the rest of the crew will be involved in some sort of shenanigans. <laughs> At least showing them trying to uh, get the captain back. But right. we'll see. So I thought at the beginning when Harry and uh, Tom were fighting, I thought, oh, well, this isn't something you see every day. Um, and especially when Harry tells Tom... You're going to be spitting teeth. I thought was quite macho for Harry. Yeah, very uncharacteristic. Yeah. So are these... So it seems like everybody, or at least a lot of the characters at the beginning of the story, are have some kind of... Something's influencing them. Right. Well, definitely Janeway, Kim, and Paris. Well, at the very least. Yes. Right. And if they're being affected, I think probably most people are being affected. But... Chakotay seems pretty cool. And Neelix, too, because Neelix, Neelix and Chakotay are the only two people that seem to be noticing how everybody else is acting weird. Right. So, something's going on. Uh, so, that a, is another mystery box for us to unlock in the next issues. Right. Yeah, and then, what happened with the two of them in the, in the brig? What, what, what flashed and suddenly knocked them both out? Well, okay, this, <laughs> I think the last episode, we talked about something similar, where there was a... Jem um, Hadar. Jem Hadar, who had bounced back away from a brig, and while in the brig, bounced back somehow with some kind of electrical field around them. Right. So, I'll say now, the same thing I said then, my theory is, they both came forward too close to the force field, and they bounced back. That's what I say. But they're knocked out. I- I've seen people touch the touch the brig wall before, and they just get kind of bounce back, and yeah. they're okay. This, these two are completely knocked out. Yeah. Huh. So yeah, I-, I I wondered if they both tried to rush each other, and they both zap themselves, which again seems kind of stupid. Yeah, it's like you guys don't know it's there, and and you're that angry that you're going to charge each other, knowing you're going to get zapped, or not caring you're going to get zapped. Or so angry that you're not even going to think about getting zapped? I don't know. So, 
you know, since this is a Marvel issue, I wonder if we're going to see, you know, the uh, Loki staff somewhere on the ship that's, like, making everybody angry and agitated. <laughs> I, you never know. You never know. That was, for you guys not following, that was a reference to the Avengers. Yes. But, Another I mean, th- it's not like, well, hold on one second. Well, just sure. in regards to them being so angry. You know, at first I was trying to justify it. Oh, well, they're they're in orbit of this planet, and then that's a, affecting their moods. But but they were already at each other's throat way before they they found this planet and, and headed over there. So. Yep. So was it the uh, space they're in that's affecting them, not necessarily the planet? Right. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, because there was seven planets there, so maybe they're closer to one of the other ones. Yeah, and I'm not saying the source is necessarily a planet. I'm just right, saying I'm there's just something... Saying where the order energy wave could have affected all that area of space, not just the one planet. Right, right. Exactly. And somehow residuals are still there. And right, and affecting them. Right. So, anyways, I'm looking forward to finding out what that's all about. So, um, drawing style, again, Jesus is our penciler. But um, something that struck me is in the in that two-page layout where Harry's attacking Paris. Uh-huh. And there's a blonde guy in the back to the, right, to the left of Harry. Harry's left our right as we're looking at the page. Right. And he says, get him, Kim. And the guy's, especially his, his like, mouth, just reminds me of some manja thing. I thought you were going to say Archie. Is, anytime you don't like the artwork, you always blame Archie. Uh, that you mention it. No. Uh, I think it's more manja. Or at least that's what it, it strikes me as. But <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I can see that, I guess. I mean, it, it's a very big mouth compared to the rest of his body. Or the rest right. of his face. Big, wide open eyes. Kind of the, the curvature of the mouth almost looks like those ridiculous um, manja drawings when the characters are overly emoting. Right. Yeah. No, I, I can see that. But I want to know what all these other aliens are. Like the alien behind him, the gray one. I've never seen that before. Right. Yeah, there are quite a few different characters there in the background of the fight. Right. And some of which alien. So, anyways. Yeah, I don't know. Kim is mad in that picture. You ain't kidding. And that's just not Harry. Harry's a pretty level-headed guy normally. And then there's poor Neelix trying to deal with the situation, which is uh, rather ridiculous. Oh, and he's got a knife that that takes his hat off. That's a bit extreme. <laughs> Somebody throws a knife around. Anyway, it was it was a crazy food fight. Yeah, plates and knives. Yeah. Anyway, that's all I have to say about this issue. Oh, that was short. It is short. I don't. Sorry. Yeah, I don't really have anything else either. The cat was a very interesting style because it... I call it a cat because I don't know what other type of animal it might have looked like. But, I mean, it's it's huge, so its body looks almost maybe bear-like. Right. But then its face looks like a cat, except it has... (laughs) A red beard. A red beard, yeah. Red jowly beard. Right. And then the... Yeah, go ahead. And the back of the body is purple fur, 
and the and like the neck forward, and then also the front legs is uh, like brown. It's right. very oddly colored. It is a very oddly colored. But he's also horrible because she's standing right next to him when he first pounces, and somehow Janeway escapes. Right. So he's not a very good hunter. <laughs> Even though it looks very big and powerful. Right. And is he supposed to be dead, too? Because they say there's no life sign, no animal life signs on the planet, don't they? Oh, I didn't remember that. I thought they said that right before the thing jumped out. Yeah, it says the tricorder registered no life, no signs of life, and then it jumps out. Oh, right. Cass says that. Yeah. So is there other animals on the planet aside from this cat and... Uh, and the alien. And the alien. The powerful yeah. alien. And maybe even those other three races. I mean, how did they get down there? Did, did the alien well, beam them up while he was talking to her? I don't know. Good question. But we know odds are they came from the ships in right. orbit, ultimately. But your point is, if there's no life signs, then how did they just pop up, you know, right. uh, five minutes later? Right. Good question. Because those other three ships just showed up in orbit, and then, but their three captains, I'm assuming it's the three captains, are already down on the planet with the aliens. So. Right. I was a little confused about that part, too. Yeah. So are they holograms, uh, or are the tricorders just being masked? Their beams? Don't know. Right. Right. But I'll tell you one thing. A phaser rifle is supposed to be effective. So a phaser rifle blast that goes through some kind of unreal hologram? Okay. That I'll buy. But if it's any kind of real creature, then... I'm not buying it. Right. And did you like the way... Well, unless it's a Shelat, right? Oh, no, that's oh, disruptors. disruptors it's immune to. Never exactly. Mind. Exactly. Unusually, uh, yeah. So that's a reference, of course, to a Deep Space Nine issue that we read not too long ago. Malibu, where Odo changed into a Shelat that... Is resistant. to be resistant to blast... Uh, a disruptor. But yeah. did you see the way Tuvok was holding the phaser rifle? Yeah. His so, right hand is way forward. Yeah, he's actually holding the, the, like the nozzle part and not the, the second handle. Yeah, it's got a nice... That design has a nice little <laughs> forward, downward uh, handhold. Right. And, and, and he's got his hand like right there on the barrel near where the phaser emitter is coming out. Exactly. And it's like, that's kind of dangerous, isn't it? Oh, well. Lives on the edge. Actually, you know what? Maybe he might not have a phaser rifle. Well, okay. He might, I think that's actually another. Oh, a hand phaser. He's holding a hand phaser, and then the that, blonde that, guy has that just perfect. That just perfectly lines up with the blonde guy's phaser rifle. So they're both shooting at it. Right. Huh. Good point. So, all right. It now, just, I, it's confusing. It is confusing, and uh, I think Jesus definitely could have drawn that slightly differently so it wouldn't be so confusing. Right. Because, I mean, it was a conscious decision to line up Tuvok's hand phaser with the front of the security guy's uh, phaser rifle. Yep. He did it on purpose, just to confuse us. I think so. I think that was a trap, and we fell into it. Damn you, Jesus! (laughs) All right, anything else? Last comment is, compare and contrast, 
Voyager had its own phaser rifle design. Deep Space Nine originally had its own phaser rifle design. TNG, or, uh, yeah, TNG had, I think that was the same phaser rifle, at least in the show, that, that DS9 used. And then, of course, we have the, the different designs they used in the TNG movies. So I just want to state my preference for the record. I still think the coolest phaser rifle ever was the one Kirk used in Where No Man Has Gone Before. <laughs> but the second coolest, I think, is definitely the first contact phaser rifle. Right. Which, and the w- which they did start using in Deep Space Nine after that episode. Oh, cool. I mean, after that movie. After the movie? That makes more sense. Uh, I think it was a cool design. I think that first next-gen time period phaser rifle that really just looked like a really long hand phaser, I thought that was like the weakest design ever. Right. Just yeah. to mention. And yeah. then the, Vo- the Voyager design, I think, is uh, yeah, I think it's pretty cool, but still not as good as the first contact phaser rifle. And then they changed it up again for Insurrection, didn't they, or Nemesis? Then they kind of make a silver-plated one. Nemesis. Oh, what a problem movie that was. Um, for somehow, for some reason, they decided they needed to make a shiny, silver-plated phaser rifle that that Riker used a lot. And it was like, why do you do that? It makes it look so cheap and crappy. Yeah, they did change it up in Nemesis, and I just really think that they just cheapened it. Right. Yeah, I'm also not crazy about the shininess of the, uh, the the phasers in the new movies. Too shiny. I thought you liked them. Well, I do like them in general. The general, I, I like the design in general. I just think it's too shiny. Ah. Uh, too silvery shiny. Anyway. Okay. All right. That's my last comment. Okay. Well, I'm done as well. So I guess we can uh, wrap it up and uh, we'll come back next week for... Episode 160, where we're going to do Star Trek Unlimited, number one and two by Marvel Comics. Right. And those two are double size issues, so, so we'll we have, have a four stories next week. Four. Count them four full-size stories. So, I mean, the, the good thing is if you get sick of hearing us, you can always take a break, come back to it later, <laughs> and, watch, and listen to the rest of it, because it'll be a long episode. Well, let's hope not too long. Well, we, we're going to try not to waste anyone's time, but there is a lot of ground to cover in those four issues. Right. All right. Well, speaking of not wasting time, let's get going, and we'll be back next week. Sounds good. Thanks for joining us, everybody, on The Review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review.